and Select Meditations, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography entry onto her, um, Susanna Hopton in the Early Modern English Women series, and several other articles on Traherne and other 17th century authors. Um, Julia is also currently excitingly completing a biography of Traherne and is the general editor of the ongoing Oxford Traherne Collected Edition. Um, I think the facts really do speak for themselves. I can't think of anyone better suited to talk to us about Traherne at Brasenose in terms of interest and expertise, and it is a great privilege to have you with us this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thomas Traherne understood the value of libraries and archives and their place in the university. He emphasised the importance of the most old and authentic records and he gave thanks for such books and universities, such colleges and libraries as seemed to him to constitute part of the paradise of God. It therefore seems very appropriate to look at what the library and the archives of Traherne's College can tell us about his life and works. Sources in the college archives, and some of them are on display here behind us, relate primarily to the earlier part of Traherne's life. So I want to begin by summarising briefly what they tell us of Traherne's time in Oxford, before looking in more detail at what we could learn of his works and their reception history from the holdings of the college library. Traherne was admitted to Brasenose on the 1st of March 1653 at the age of 15, probably the first time he had ever left his native city of Hereford. He would have found in Oxford, as in Hereford, a society struggling to recover from the aftermath of the Civil War, and Brasenose itself, under a zealous Puritan governance, to the requirements of which Traherne must have conformed. On his first arrival, however, Traherne was probably more concerned with the formalities of paying a wide range of fees, being assigned to a tutor, entering his name in the buttery book, and matriculating as a commoner on the 2nd of April, a month after his arrival. His arrival in the college is well documented in the archives. Um, thereafter, the college records reveal considerably more about his weekly consumption of bread and ale than they do of his intellectual life. But from Traherne's own works, we know that he relished the beautiful streets and famous colleges of Oxford and the taste and tincture of another education but he also notoriously found that there was never a tutor that did professly teach felicity. His notes on his undergraduate reading in ethics, geometry and history are to be found in his early notebook, which is now preserved in the volume. After taking part in the usual exercises, he was admitted to the degree of BA in October 1656 and remained in Oxford until um, at least Lent 1657 when he took part in the disputations required of a determining bachelor described by Traherne as dry and empty themes. <coughs> On the 30th of December 1657, having recently left Brasenose, Traherne was admitted to the living of Hill in Herefordshire. He was to remain rector of Hill until his death in 1674, but he kept in regular contact with Oxford throughout his life. In October 1660, he received Episcopal ordination at Launton in the Oxford Diocese. It's not known whether he visited Brasenose on that occasion or not, but he must have done so when he returned again in November 1661 to take his MA. He would have seen significant changes in the college since his time as an undergraduate. Uh, when Traherne was an undergraduate, Brasenose consisted only of a single quadrangle. But by the time of his return in 1661, an ambitious building project for a new chapel, cloister and library 
was well advanced. Traherne must have been impressed by this because in May 1664 he donated 20 shillings towards the completion of the work, um, recorded in the benefactor's book, again displayed on the table behind. Probably he saw these finished buildings for the first time when he was readmitted to Brasenose on the 9th of December 1669. He was admitted BD two days later, dispensed from some of the statutory requirements for the degree because of business. After 1669, the Brasenose archives tell us nothing more of Traherne. And we have to turn instead to the library's holdings of his early printed works. Brasenose is fortunate to have copies of the only two works of which Traherne initiated the publication himself, uh, his Roman Forgeries of 1673 and his Christian Ethics of 1675. And again, the Brasenose copies of these works are, are on display on the table. And we can learn both from the content of these works and from their material features about Traherne's life in relation to Oxford and to Brasenose and about the subsequent reception of his works. Roman Forgeries is a polemical tract exposing alleged falsifications by Roman Catholics of the councils of the early church. Traherne published it anonymously, um, identifying himself on the title page merely as a faithful son of the Church of England. However, in both its geographical and its intellectual context, it's very much an Oxford work, and Traherne deliberately places it uh, in this way by drawing attention within the work itself to the fact that much of his research for it was undertaken in the Bodleian, which he calls the glory of Oxford and this nation. It had been the particular preoccupation of Bodley's first librarian, Thomas James, to establish the library as a scholarly bulwark against Romish corruptions, and Traherne identifies with this tradition by recounting in the preface a lively dispute which he had with an obdurate papist whom he met in the school's quadrangle. And he also lists works of vast bulk and price which he consulted in the Bodleian. Roman forgeries, however, doesn't tell us where, when Traherne undertook his research in the Bodleian. Perhaps he did some of it in December 1669 when he was at Brasenose to take his BD, but internal references in Roman forgeries show that he was still working on the book in the early 1670s, and it seems likely that there was a further period of residence at Oxford which is not recorded in the Brasenose buttery books, and of which we currently have no other documentary evidence. There is, in fact, a gap in Traherne, records of Traherne's life at this period. We don't have any records for 1670 of his presence in his parish either. Uh, another question is that we don't know whether or not Traherne also made use of the collections of the councils of the churches, of the church, which he could have found in Brasenose College Library. An interesting piece of information about both Traherne's life and about the printing history of Roman forgeries can be derived from an annotation on page 43 of the Brasenose copy. And this same annotation is found in, in 54 of the 60 copies of Roman forgeries, which are currently known to be extant. And this annotation is in Traherne's own hand. And it implements one in, in, in all 54 copies, and it implements one of the corrections listed in the errata by inserting the words "love of the world" back. And again, this is something which people can look at afterwards. And together with uh, other corrections in the volume and um, the patterns of the correction, 
This tells us what we otherwise have no evidence for, that Traherne was present in London in the autumn of 1673, and that he must have corrected the unbound sheets in the printing house. Roman Forgeries also looks forward to Traherne's next publication, Christian Ethics, in the fact that it's dedicated to his future patron, Sir Orlando Bridgman, who'd been Lord Keeper of the Great Seal until his removal from office in 1672. By early uh, 1674, Traherne had become Bridgman's domestic chaplain, a short-lived appointment as Bridgman died in June of that year and Traherne himself died a few months later. So during this short period in 1674, Traherne worked on Christian ethics, a treatise on virtue, which is in complete contrast to the Oxford context of Roman forgeries, very much a product of the Bridgman circle, both in its moral philosophy and in the elite and wealthy audience which it explicitly addresses. Traherne delivered this manuscript to the bookseller in the summer of 1674, but as a uh, printed note to the reader observes, died before he was able to correct the proofs. After Traherne's death in the autumn of 1674, he was very quickly claimed as an Oxford author by Anthony Wood, who began collecting information about him for Athenaioxonienses within only a few days of Traherne's death. Wood's entry on Traherne reflects this. It records his academic career, notes his authorship of Roman forgeries and Christian ethics, and describes him as well-read in primitive antiquity, as in the councils, fathers, etc., and this perspective was to define Traherne's reputation as a minor scholarly Oxford author for the next 200 years. Throughout the 20th century, it was a scholarly commonplace to assert that Roman forgeries and Christian ethics had remained completely unread since Traherne's death. And many literary critics, like Bertram Dobell, could hardly help regretting that Roman forgeries should have been written. In fact, although Traherne's early works were very rarely cited in other publications, an extensive survey of extant copies um, undertaken by the Oxford Traherne edition, which is currently in progress, reveals a modest but nonetheless continuing readership throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, and also a discernibly different pattern of use for the two works. And I want to look now at what the Brazenose copies in particular can tell us about those early readers and owners, and, and how that fits into the context of the general pattern of what we know about um, early ownership. Brazenose acquired its copies of Roman forgeries and Christian ethics at a relatively late date, when in 1892 it purchased them as part of a collection of works of Brazenose authors assembled by William Edward Buckley. Buckley, former Brazenose undergraduate, fellow of the college and Rawlinson professor of Anglo-Saxon, had published the two works in 1845 and 1846, respectively. And it's worth emphasising that it was specifically as a Brazenose and an Oxford author that both um, Buckley and the college were interested in Traherne. Two other things we can note is that Traherne didn't donate Roman forgeries to his, own, to his old college himself. Um, Christian Ethics was not published till after his death, so he couldn't have donated that. Um, nor did Brazenose uh, purchase Traherne's works when they were first published, 
although the library did have uh, a regular annual budget for acquisitions in the early 16, well, throughout the 1670s. Christian, I mean, this is, is slightly unusual because Christian ethics, with its more devotional content, was less likely to be acquired by institutional libraries at an early date. But Roman forgeries was reasonably well represented in university and cathedral libraries in the 17th and 18th centuries. And a number of uh, copies in other Oxford colleges, including All Souls, Jesus and Queens, had acquired their copies by the mid-18th century. Copies of both works in other libraries reveal the names of some interesting early readers and also patterns of readership. Early um, private owners of Roman forgeries include Thomas Ken, White Kennet, and a variety of bishops of, variety of various political opinions. Um, an, a 17th century Irish Franciscan at Rome, an American Huguenot family, a number of women readers, and also the extant copies uh, show some evidence of modest scholarly use. Um, extant copies of Christian ethics, on the other hand, were much more likely to belong to private non-elite owners and to show evidence of a much wider variety of types of use, uh, more generally non-scholarly and, and, and with a more devotional emphasis. In the context of this picture, we know rather less about the identities of the early owners of the Brazenose copies. The only named owner prior to Buckley in the Brazenose copies is the 18th century book collector, um, Archdeacon of Cleveland, Francis Rangham, who signed his name um, on the title page of Roman forgeries. Um, Rangham, who says that his hall, dining room, anteroom, drawing rooms, bedrooms, garret, closets, etc., etc., all overflowed with books, um, probably bought, bought the book because it was rare, um, rather than because it was a specific title that he wanted to read. Um, nonetheless, both Brazenose copies show some signs of use by anonymous early readers. An early reader of Roman forgeries implemented the corrections from the errata list and a few others which the person had spotted for themselves, and the reader of the Brazenose Christian Ethics inked in badly printed letters, made small corrections and marked some passages in the margin. One of the most interesting features of the Brazenose copies is the title page of Roman forgeries, and you'll see that the, the copy is open at this page, in which we can see readers um, across different centuries engaged in a debate about attribution. Um, under, uh, on the title page, it says, By a faithful son of the Church of England. And a late 17th century reader has added to this, said to be Dr. Comer, that is Thomas Comer, Dean of Durham, um, who also wrote a work called Roman Forgeries, but not published till 1689. And this isn't the only surviving copy of Traherne's work to be erroneously attributed to Comer by early readers, and there are at least three other copies with the same annotation. However, uh, the reader of the Brazenose copy, or possibly a slightly later reader, became more confident of this incorrect attribution and altered it uh, to read from reading said to be by Dr. Comer to read to wit Dr. Comer. Um, Dr. Comer was in turn later deleted, uh, perhaps by Francis Rangham, who knew the correct author, um, and Rangham cited in his library catalogue uh, for evidence of authorship, not just Wood, um, but also an advertisement in uh, another early printed book, John Nelson's Countermine of 1677, uh, which advertises Roman forgeries as being by Traherne. Um, this note from Rangham's catalogue was subsequently copied, probably by um, the auctioneer, below the deleted, uh, the, the description to, 
coma, which by now has been deleted by yet another reader. Um, Buckley, the final private owner, was in no doubt about the work's authorship, purchasing it precisely because it was written by a known Brasenose author. Only a few years after Brasenose's acquisition of Traherne's works in 1892, knowledge of and interest in their authorship was to change radically. In the winter of 1896-7, the extraordinary story of the rediscovery of Traherne's manuscripts began when W.T. Brooke purchased two anonymous manuscripts from two London book barrows for a few pence. Thought at first to be by Henry Vaughan, they were subsequently identified as Traherne's through the detective work of Bertram Dobell, who published Traherne's poetical works in 1903 and the centuries in 1908. Over the next hundred years, more discoveries continued to be made, so that we now have ten Traherne manuscripts, largely autographed, of works which were not published and one which were, are, are otherwise unknown. And it's quite possible that there are still more unknown Traherne manuscripts waiting to be discovered. As a result of these discoveries, Traherne is no longer known primarily, primarily as a scholarly Oxford author, the reputation which he had for 200 intervening years, but is now known primarily as a spiritual writer of great beauty and power whose works have a much wider appeal and who is now associated much more closely with Herefordshire than with Oxford. However, this in turn has created a renewed interest in Roman forgeries and Christian ethics of a different kind for the insight which they provide into the intellectual background of the author of the spiritual works. Um, Roman forgeries for example, is now being edited for the first time since 1673. And again, in turn, um, the renewed interest has created further interest in the life of the Brasenose graduate who wrote these two printed works. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. So, um, given that the Oxford Traherne is currently in process, and that sort of highlights how timely and appropriate it is to be discussing surviving copies of Traherne's mm -hmm. works. And um, I thought I'd begin with that. Right. And because, as you said, only three of his works were printed in the 17th century, and we have an unusual quantity of autographed manuscripts, um, how, can you tell me a bit about how the printed texts are going to fit into what I assume will be a heavily manuscript-based edition? I think it's had quite an important influence on the textual policy. And the Oxford Traherne edition will have 14 volumes. And 11 of them are based on the autograph manuscripts. And because of that, I think it's primarily um, the needs of the manuscripts and the desire to, to reproduce um, each work. Um, and you know, to represent the integrity of the individual manuscripts and, and to present, I mean, to a kind of limit I mean, within the confines of the print medium, um, to, to, to show on the printed page what the manuscripts were like. Um, we've transferred some of the conventions which we're using for editing the manuscripts over to editing the printed works, which I, th I therefore think are going to be perhaps more likely amended than they might have been if it had been primarily an edition edited from print. And I think one of the things that we're bearing in mind is we don't currently have any manuscripts um, for the works which were printed in the 17th century. But during the lifetime of the edition, it's very far from impossible that such manuscripts might be discovered. 
and that if manuscripts of Roman forgeries and Christian ethics and the posthumous publication Serious and Pathetical Contemplation were to turn up, we would be interested in studying the transition from manuscript to print. And that therefore, if we apply to editing the printed texts, some of the conventions which are more normally applied to editing printed texts, I mean, such as you know, I mean, normalising compositorial peculiarities and you know, putting in missing punctuation and so on, that would be an, an, a possible aspect of the relationship to the manuscripts that, that we would lose. And while fully accepting that obviously a lot of the spelling and the punctuation and the layout and so on of the printed texts have been introduced by compositors and not by Traherne, um, emending them is going to take the text further from, from, from um, the Traherne manuscript and not closer. So that we have tried to bear in mind that a situation might arise in which we would want to compare the, 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 our edition, our edited version of the printed texts with a manuscript which might be discovered. Um, it's not, it isn't just a daydream, I mean, thinking that we might discover more Traherne manuscripts, because if you look at the history of the discovery of the Traherne manuscripts, and the ten which have come to light over the last hundred years have almost all been discovered by pure chance. Nobody has actually set out to look for them systematically. And now that, I mean, the edition is discovering a lot more about the history of the manuscripts since Traherne's death and tracing their provenance, tracing their early owners and looking at you know, which manuscripts kind of went about together and, 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 and looking at their history in sale catalogues. And I think it's a perfectly realistic aim, armed with this information, to think that you know, over the course of the edition and with a large number of people participating in the systematic search, that, that manuscripts might emerge. Um, thank you. Um, I was going to ask you now a bit about um, the collation project that you've undertaken in order to work with the printed texts because I know you've been using some new technology and you've tried some bit of brazenose already. That's right. Yes, that's right. I mean, the, one of the uh, interesting features of editing Traherne's early printed works is that very, very little is known about their early printing history and they've not been uh, systematically collated uh, before. Um, there is... Um, an existing um, edition of Christian Ethics, published in 1968, which undertook quite limited um, collection, I mean, which was done, I mean, purely visually, that is, with, 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 with the eye. Um, but also the number of co uh, extant copies known to exist then was, was quite small. Um, Raymond Forgeries um, and Serious and Pathetical Contemplation um, have to date not uh, being seriously collated at all. And we were quite interested, um, not just in the fact that this might um, tell us um, something interesting about the early printed history, but also in the mechanics of how you did the, the, the collation. And, um, I mean, I've got no idea to, to, to what extent you've got experts on collation in, 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 the, in the audience or not. But I explain that I, there are really, I, currently, I mean, scholarly projects are using two different ways of doing it. I mean, quite a, quite a um, popular um, technology at the moment is a thing called the Halley's Comet, which is a, a, a complicated contraption with, with, with two mirrors, which... Super in, quasi superimposes um, images from two different copies, um, so that the um, the differences um, are, are, are supposed to to leap out at you. Um, I must say that one of the and, and, and it's been being used very successfully by other Oxford editions currently in progress. Um, I mean, one of the reasons which made the the Oxford Traherne edition feel that we we wanted to develop um, something different um, is that. 
Um, people who use the Halley's Comet widely report that it makes them feel sick. And we, 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 we weren't collectively that devoted to scholarship. We, we, we didn't want to find a more user-friendly way of doing it. Um, there, there, are, there are also um, projects um, of which the, the Oxford Spencer edition is, is, is one, which is um, developing um, collation software which um, can you know, automatically um, discern variants um, in, in different copies, um, but which works entirely from images um, rather than from the original copy. And what we wanted to do was to find a way of combining um, digital technology for uh, comparing copies but to still retain the possibility of, of, of examining the physical copy we were looking at at the same time. And, 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 and what we, we've done, um, we've now got a working prototype of this, um, in collaboration with, with colleagues in um, Oxford Physics and Engineering Science, is to develop um, a portable collator uh, which can go to libraries, um, which... Um, use the copy through a digital camera, but you've actually still got the copy in front of you, which enables you to check details which you can't interpret on the screen. Uh, um, but it brings up the image on the screen, and you can simultaneously um, run um, digital uh, software, which colleagues in engineering science have developed for us, um, which has got several different visualisations of the differences between the two copies. I mean, it highlights... Um, you, you can either have... Uh, two, two images of different copies of the same text displayed side by side with the, with the, the differences in the text highlighted in colour. Or you can have the two images superimposed, um, which shows what the, the other visualisation can't. Um, slight displacements uh, in, in, in the type. Uh, which might reveal, for example, that, 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 the, that the same words had been reset but in a slightly different position. Um, and, yeah, I mean, this, this, this is working very well. And we, we, we've done trials of it in, in um, several Oxford College libraries. Um, and, you know, which phrase uh, is, 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 is one. I would like to say the, the Oxford Traherne has had splendid cooperation from Brasenose Library in, in, in our work, for which we're very grateful. So um, yeah, we we we, um, we we do now have this this new 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 system for collating, which we we hope is is, is going to be very successful, um, and which is going to detect differences between different copies of the work, which wouldn't otherwise have been perceptible. Right, I'm going to move um, to one of the manuscripts now. So the early notebook is the only one that's roughly con um, contemporary with Traherne's time of Brace Yes, that right? that's right, yes, as um, far yes. as we know, yes. So could you tell us a little bit about that, and perhaps a little bit as well about his brother, Philip, whose reputation I know has suffered greatly at the hands of yes. our president? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, the early notebook um, originally belonged to Traherne's brother, Philip. Philip was a younger brother, and didn't have the university education. Um, Traherne was the son of a, a shoemaker, a master craftsman, but nonetheless um, somebody who probably could not afford to send two sons to university. Um, Traherne, as the, the elder son, went to Oxford. I think it's, it's, it's very clear from uh, Philip Traherne's subsequent career that he would have liked to do that too. I mean, he did subsequently become um, both a clergyman and a scholar in spite of not having had a university education. Um, and the early notebook was a, a, a originally his purchase, and, and he inscribes his, his, his name on, 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 on um, well, he designs a type of page and he inscribes his name on it, and contains some Latin exercises by Philip. Um, but for some reason, the notebook was subsequently taken over by Thomas, uh, who, who used it for his undergraduate notes on various subjects, um, and continued to use it, I think, for um, some quite long period afterwards, um, in, in which uh, it subsequently turned into a notebook which primarily for uh, recording extracts from, from Francis Bacon. Um, 
He also um, wrote a few original poems in the back, um, some, some of which date from his, his time as rector at Creddon Hill. Um, there, there, there are... I mean, in a way, I mean, it's, 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 it's a kind of... Um, in a way, a, 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 a typical you know, manuscript miscellany. It's, it's, it's got um, translations of um, Latin authors and retranslations of them back into English verse. Um, there are some sources in it which have not yet been traced. I think there is still quite a lot about it that's, that, that, that's, that's not understood. Um, and its relation, I mean, how Philip and, 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 and Thomas jointly used it is, is something that I think we haven't yet thoroughly got to grips with. Um, I think it's important to recognise that um, Thomas had, throughout his life, a close relationship with, with, with Philip, not just a personal relationship, but in terms of interaction in the manuscripts. Um, and as, 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 as Nan has, has mentioned, um, Philip um, subsequently has had a poor reputation with 20th century editors of Traherne. Um, I think at a, this, this developed at a, at a point where... Um, not a great deal was known about 17th century manuscript culture. And Philip's interventions in, 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 in Thomas's poetry in particular were, were, was, was not seen as, as, as two people working together, but, 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 but as a, a stupid younger brother meddling with the works of this marvellous poet, his elder brother, whom he didn't appreciate. Um, and... Earlier editions of Traherne's poetry, I mean, all the well-known, I mean, Mark um, Elliott's edition and the, the Penguin edition, um, have been concerned to attempt, although it's, I mean, it isn't actually possible, but to attempt to edit Philip's contributions out of the text. Um, I think that, 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 that isn't now how we see it. Um, I think it's... Um, I think... On the evidence of the manuscripts and the way, evidence of way in which other people worked with Traherne and compiling them, that Traherne would have taken it perfectly for granted that other people might have made alterations to his text. And that at the very least he would have thought that didn't matter. Um, and I think now the editorial tendency is to think that whatever the final version was, it was the product of a collaboration that that, that should be allowed to stand. Um, thank you. And I think I am going to close with a question about Traherne's philosophy of felicity, because you were talking about how he lamented the sound yes, of that phrase. Yes, yes, yes. Why don't you tell us about that? I... Traherne's emphasis on felicity is, 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 is quite interesting because, from a historical point of view because, I mean, as I've said, throughout the, the late 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, he was primarily known as a scholarly author uh, with an interest in the history of the early church. And... When the first Traherne manuscripts were discovered and published in the early 20th century, I mean, the first two things were published, which have, I mean, have ever since been the best-known ones, Traherne's lyric poetry in his centuries, um, they were the most, I suppose, ecstatic in, in, in way of Traherne's works, and possibly the most easily accessible. And... Certainly, I think, those of Traherne's works which put the most emphasis on themes which are now generally associated with Traherne, felicity and innocence and childhood and, and, and so on. And it's certainly the case that, that Traherne um, sets a very high value on, on Felicity and the religious concept of felicity. I mean, something which he believed to be a state of mind and to be attainable in this life, and which is very well represented by the manuscript of his commentary of heaven, uh, which is an alphabetical compilation 
um, covering an extremely wide range of subjects in Aristotle, accounting, arithmetic, angels. We only got as far as the letter B. Um, but, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, this very wide range of subjects, it was the object of his encyclopedia to present them all as they appear in the light of felicity. And so it, it was a very important thing, but at the same time, discoveries since those two first discoveries at the beginning of the 20th century have, in a way, um, not exactly played it down, but made us see that there are also many other dimensions to um, Trahan's philosophical outlook. Um, many of them, I think the other thing that, about the, the, the doctrine of felicity is that it has seemed very much to have a, a timeless aspect to it, not to be very closely related to kind of the concerns of the late 17th century, um, whereas subsequent discoveries, um, like select meditations and commentaries of heaven and the works in the Lambeth manuscript, um, have been much more explicitly engaged with, with, with contemporary concerns. So I think, yes, the, 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 the doctrine of felicity, I mean, is, it is central to, to Traherne's thought, but it doesn't have kind of quite the explicit prominence, I think, taken in his works as a whole, as it maybe appeared to have on, on the basis of those first two manuscript discoveries. Um, and I think one of the things which work on Traherne is now doing is, is trying to um, uncover a Traherne with, with, with many more aspects, with, 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 with a much more multifaceted intellectual and philosophical and, and religious outlook than was thought for, for, for much of the, the, the 20th century to, to, to pertain to him. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to open it up to questions from anyone who has one now. So, go ahead. <laughs> Doing all the jump blocks. Do these later discoveries do anything to dilute his optimism, which is so sustained in the familiar works? Do shadows yes. or any kind of sense of tragedy steal in? I... I wouldn't say that Traherne had a sense of tragedy. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to find any Traherne works which um, suggest a perception that, 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 that life is, is... I mean, he wasn't a kind of... I mean, he, he wasn't a Thomas Hardy or even had a kind of Thomas Hardy you know, side in his character. That, that his, I, I don't think Traherne had the perception that, that, that life was fundamentally tragic. Um, nonetheless, I think it is the case that the later works have done quite a lot to both, I mean, in, the, in their own content to, 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 to moderate the sense of Traherne's optimism. Um, I think Select Meditations, for example, um, gives a very strong sense um, of Traherne's awareness of sin and also not only sin in individual lives, but also sin in, 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 na in the national life and, and, and how that was reflected in, 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 in the political um, upheaval of the mid-17th century. Um, I think also his... Um, I mean, there are passages in Commentaries of Heaven, for example, um, that show a, a, a pastoral awareness, I suppose one might say, or, 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 you know, when, when he was rector at Cretton Hill, um, of the fact that that, 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 that that other people's lives are 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 are, are, are difficult and and, 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 and not fueled by the ultimate um, optimism that things you know kind of would turn out for the best, which I, I, which Traherne himself did undoubtedly have. But yes, I, 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 I do think they have moderated it, it quite a lot, and that's partly a result of the extent to which they show his engagement with, with specific and detailed um, political and ecclesiastical affairs in the 17th century. That I think that the power of his the sense of optimism in the earlier works um, was partly accompanied by um, the perception when they were first discovered 
that Traherne was detached from the events of his own time. And I mean, this is something which you find over and over again, early 20th century um, critical writing on Traherne. That, 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 that Traherne, you know, what, 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 what wandered happily amongst the green and leafy lanes of Herefordshire, you know, with ne 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 never a thought of civil wars and, you know, kings being beheaded and people being turned out of their livings. And, you know. um, and, I mean, we now know that that's not the case. Um, but I think also the, 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 the different um, perspective of some of the works which have been discovered since have also, and also um, different um, emphases in, in modern scholarship, I think have also um, enabled us to see a, um, more than an undercurrent, but an, 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 an implicit awareness of and reference um, to current affairs, even in works like um, the poems and the centuries, um, from which such um, concerns were initially thought to be absent. What's his take on Bacon? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's something on which there is a great deal more work to be done. And I think the main, the most conspicuous aspect of um, Traherne's use of Bacon is that although his most of the extracts um, which he copies into the early notebook are from the Dale of Mantis. And he is not particularly interested in its overall thesis. That, that what, I mean, he, he's, he's extracting as into a commonplace book where he finds little passages on uh, yeah, schoolmasters or money or what, 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 whatever theme he's interested in and, 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 and copies out little extracts. And Traherne certainly had... Um, scientific interests, interests in the new philosophy, um, which come out very strongly in, in later works like Commentaries of Heaven and, and, and The Kingdom of God. But you wouldn't altogether be able to deduce that, I think, from the, the, the passages of Bacon which he chooses to, to copy into the early notebook. Um, that now, as I, I mean, there, there is a lot more work to be done on it, and, and, and also, I mean, com comparing it with ways in it in, 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 in which you know, other commonplace books extract from Bacon. Um, why he used the edition which he did, which was a, um, an edition published in, in, in Paris and not one of the editions more commonly available in, in England and, and in Oxford. Um, they, we don't know. We don't know what date he took the extracts at, but. I think they do not clearly show that at the date at which he wrote them, that Traherne was a, a kind of um, avid um, follow-up disciple of, of Bacon's philosophy. Mm -hmm. What about the microscope? Ah, there's a lot of microscopic imagery in Traherne. That's that. That's right. And, and um, again. Yeah, I mean, there are places that he you know, he could have seen microscopes. I mean, it's it's it, you know, I mean, very likely that he did. There are lots of places he could have come across them. He doesn't refer to them very explicitly, but on the other hand, there are passages, um, descriptions of the 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 ant in commentaries of heaven of of of, of a. Of a a common fly in, in the kingdom of God, where he describes it in the most meticulous detail, where it's it's very difficult not 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 to believe that the kind of imagery he's using um, is is derived from um, the idea of microscopic examination. So yeah, and, and, and similarly and similarly with telescopes. Um, so he could be read about them, couldn't he? Rather than yeah, he, he he yeah. I mean, he, he he could have read about them, though I think. They were probably sufficiently common in in, 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 in in Oxford, perhaps perhaps less so in Herefordshire. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't. I, th I, th I think another thing, another aspect of Traherne's intellectual background, which has not had serious study and which needs it, um, is the extent to which the local context in, in Herefordshire can provide information about this. You know, I mean, there's in, there, people have worked on. 
um, you know, might the prevalence of microscopes in Oxford and in London, but um, nobody, as far as I know, has, worked, uh, has, has, has done any, on any research on you know, what kind of access or use there was of my, microscopes in, in, in Herefordshire, and, and that's actually important since he spent most of his life there. Would a book's book of drawings from the microscope have reached Herefordshire? Oh, I think that's I think that I think that's very likely. I mean, because although I mean I referred to Traherne making um, visits to 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 Oxford. I mean, most of them were quite short, and he clearly had access to a very wide range of books, um, and which he must have had access to in in rural Herefordshire. I mean, quite a lot of um, right. I think he did quite a lot of um, reading in, in Hereford Cathedral Library and um, the, the library of the Vicar's Choral in Hereford, um, which had more general titles than the Cathedral Library. I don't think, as far as I can remember, that either of those had any hook in them. Um, but um, there were book, I mean, there were booksellers with quite extensive catalogues in Hereford during the 17th century. Um, there were books were more widely available in Worcester. I mean, for example, Traherne's friend Sir Edward Harley um, in Herefordshire, in addition to the fact that he frequently visited London, um, had you know, regular supplies of books purchased from a bookseller in Worcester. And I mean, Traherne, I think, would have had access to the libraries of people um, like Harley, who were wealthy and well-read and comparatively local. Um, I, I, again, a very understudied. Um, area of, of Traherne's context. I mean, I think actually that Herefordshire must be the least studied from any point of view um, of, of, of all English counties. It's not just with regard to, it's not just with regard to Traherne um, uh, that, 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 that it's understudied. And it, 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 it hasn't been studied really from any point of view at all. And it's important. And it, it is Traherne's context. And I mean, you know, and I think symptomatic of this is that it isn't at all uncommon in in um, writings, uh, critical writings on Traherne, um, to find the misprint Hertfordshire for Herefordshire. Um, and I, I, I think you know what what intellectual life in Herefordshire was like um, during Traherne's lifetime um, is something which very, very much needs looking into. And I think Traherne's works are in themselves um, testimony that um, intellectual life in a small rural parish in Herefordshire, and yet his parish probably didn't have more than 100, 120 inhabitants, but it must have provided a more stimulating um, intellectual environment for Traherne um, than people imagine. And, you know, people have also been very prone to say, I mean, it used to be thought that Traherne left Herefordshire much earlier than he did and became um, Bridgman's chaplain in 1667 or 1669. I mean, that's wrong. He didn't become Bridgman's chaplain until 1674. And his presence in Herefordshire is well documented for most years, I think apart from 1670 before that. And people have tended to say, oh, well, you know, he couldn't have had books, he couldn't have had intellectual companionship in Herefordshire. He must have written all these works you know, after 1667, after 1669, when he moved to, to, to Bridgman's house in London and you know, had access to a wider intellectual society. And I think that can't be true. Um, by the time Traherne moved to Bridgman's household, Bridgman was old and he was seriously ill. Um, Bridgman's library catalogue for... for, for, for um, and Bridgman wasn't living in London then. He'd retired to a villa in Teddington. Um, we've got the library catalogue uh, of Bridgman's library at Teddington, and um, not to put too fine a point on it, it was pathetic. Um, I mean, it was, a, it was a very, very small library. Perhaps Bridgman had other books in other houses, but you know, that isn't where Traherne was. So it's not obvious that he found um, a more in stimulating environment through moving to become Bridgman's chaplain. Um, and it's certainly the case that uh, most of the manuscripts must have been compiled in Herefordshire, and the several other um, largely unidentified associates who contributed to the manuscripts, and whose hands appear in them, who wrote comments in them, some of them you know, very well-read, well-informed comments, 
Um, I, these people who shared Traherne's intellectual interests and participated um, in his writing were people um, to whom he had regular access living in this tiny rural parish. So I think it is absolutely crucial to an understanding of Traherne's works that more should be found out about who he could have known in Herefordshire um, and what they read and where they got their books from and you know, what, what, and what um, you know, intellectual circles they had access to. I mean, Sir Edward Harley, Traherne's friend Sir Edward Harley, for example, um, was a fellow of the Royal Society, um, as was Edward Harley's brother Robert. Um, they weren't terribly active members. Um, they didn't make any distinguished scientific contribution, but nonetheless, they were um, a direct personal link for Traherne um, with those kinds of circles. Um, I mean, again, to contrast with Bridgman, I mean, I think it was actually quite... Um, well, in a way, I mean, slightly unusual that somebody of Bridgman's prominence um, in political life um, had, not be, had, had never been invited to, to, to be a fellow of the Royal Society and, 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 and was not interested in, in, in the new philosophy. Were either of his parish's college livings, and could he have ridden in from Bolton to read in the Bodleian? Uh, no, his... his um, Creden Hill wasn't um, a, a, a brazenose living. Um, it was uh, in the patronage of the Earls of Kent. And although there are various kind of kinship networks um, by which Traherne um, might have been presented to, we don't actually know which one was in operation. Um, the reason that he was at Launton um, and, 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 and was ordained there was not because it was his parish. It was, it was, the, it was the parish of Robert Skinner, who was Bishop of Oxford after the Restoration. Um, and although I, and, um, Skinner had been sort of in exile in Launton um, during the interregnum. Um, and, and had secretly ordained um, lots of, lots of, 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 of um, Anglican clergy um, there. I mean, he claimed as many as 400. Um, and um, he continued after the Restoration. I and mean, Traherne was a conformist and would not have wanted to be secretly ordained, contrary to the current political regime. Um, but, but Skinner continued to, 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 or, to do some ordinations <coughs> excuse me, at Launton after the Restoration. Um, and, and, and Traherne was ordained there. Um, the reason Traherne was ordained in the Oxford Diocese was because the See of Hereford was, was vacant at the time and, you know, the, and there was some political pressure um, for um, clergy presented under the interregnum to um, regularise their position. Do we have any more questions? I was just wondering whether you just wanted to find out, it's a hard question actually, do you think, um, I mean, Traherne is conformist in some sense orthodox, but do you think he believed in the Bible, in, in scriptural truth? But yeah, I was just wondering about his, his a lot of his um, poetry seems to invent personal mythologies and personal nativities and this sort of thing. Um, Traherne, I think... External conformity was very important to Traherne, and I think um, the authority of scripture was very important to Traherne. I think some of his interpretations of it, depending on the work, I mean, a work like um, A Sober View of Dr. Triss in the Lambeth Manuscript is using scriptural proof texts um, in a very... Um, in a sense, conventional way, although obviously there are, you know, there are more than one way of using a proof text. Um, in more imaginative works, uh, he, I think he does use biblical quotations or biblical allusions in, a, in an unorthodox way, but I think it was important to him, and sometimes you can see this quite explicitly, it was important to him to believe that there was scriptural authority for his opinions. Um, and um, I mean, you can see it in commentaries of heaven and, and inducements to retirement, um, for example, that, that, that sometimes he expresses quite idiosyncratic views. Um, but then he follows it up by assembling um, 
uh, a sort of medley of, of, of biblical texts, um, which he believes support this view. So, yes, I, I think he was a very deeply scriptural author. Um, doubtless, um, you know, there were people at the time who, who might have taken issue with um, some of his uh, scriptural interpretations. Um, but then, you know, the everybody's scriptural interpretations at the time were, 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 were open to having issue taken with them by somebody. Um, I think one of the most, possibly one of the most unorthodox um, beliefs, possibly one of the views that contemporaries might have found hardest, um, was his assertion, um, quite explicit in, in, in one of the poems in Commentaries of Heaven, um, that heaven is a state of mind and not a place. Um, again, he thinks. I mean, he, he thinks he, he has scriptural evidence for this, um, but I, I, I think that was um, certainly a, a, a non-orthodox view. But he wanted. He, but the fact that some of his views were were, were, were unorthodox, I don't, I don't think undermines the extent to which he was and wanted to be um, reliant on on scriptural authority for his beliefs. Um, thank you very much, everyone. I think we're done. And do help yourself to refreshments and do come and have a look at the books, but not at the same time. <laughs>